0: Timothy chapter 3. We are beginning the qualifications for deacon tonight. So this will be part 1. I'm not sure how long it'll take. I don't think it'll take as long to get through this because some of these qualifications are more or less repeats or very similar to the ones of um, the earlier verses, verses 1 through 7 for the elder. And But we are talking about what the deacon must be. just like we were talking about with qualifications for an elder, we were saying this is what the elder must be. It's no less uh, necessity, it's no less of a you know absolute that this is what these qualifications are what the deacon must be. And so what we're going to do here is we look at verses eight and nine tonight, we're going to look at one observation. And then we've got five qualifications. Now, I don't know if we're going to get through all of them. Tonight, we'll see how far we get. But we'll start with the observation. And the observation is that the qualifications are necessary. You must, just like with the elders, you must examine these men the same way to make sure that they're qualified. It's necessary, and we know this. Well, first of all, let's talk about what we're talking about. We're talking about the office of deacon to begin with. And the word deacon is diakonos. It means someone who is like a servant. Uh, it could mean someone in classical Greek, like someone who could wait tables. And not just wait tables, but do all kinds of different menial jobs. Um, and somebody that obviously, as you look at the way that the term develops in the New Testament, it goes from like a general term of service, like, okay, here's someone who's just generally serving God, Right to very specifically it becomes an office. So look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 and you'll see that it is an office. There in Philippians 1:1 1, 1, and we are only given two offices in Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. Philippians 1:1 1, 1 says Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. We've already said overseers is a synonymous word for elder. So you've got two offices in the church. Um, This is kind of a Baptist distinctive. That's what we hold to, uh, elders and deacons. Um, You come over here to 1 Timothy 3. You've got the qualifications laid out in depth for both. So very clearly, you're talking about a specific office. Um, the general term. We should take a look at the general term for a minute, where it's used in other in other ways. Ephesians chapter six, verse twenty-one. Ephesians six, verse twenty-one, says, "So that you may, so that you also may know how I am, and what I am doing." Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So that word ministers is that same word diakonos. And so this is one of those examples of someone who's just—we don't know whether or not he was technically a deacon or not, but we do know that he was a minister of the Lord, a servant of the Lord. Uh, Colossians chapter four verse seven is another example of this. Colossians chapter four verse seven, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He he is a beloved brother and faithful minister. So it's another just another reference. Same guy. He's a faithful minister and fellow servant. In the Lord, and then you go to First Timothy chapter four, verse six, and he's speaking here, challenging Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. There's a lot of discussion about what Timothy exactly is. He wasn't an apostle. Um, he seems to be some kind of church planter, maybe a church planting evangelist. Type person, but nobody that I know has said that he's a deacon. <laughs> but the word diakonos is used here to describe generally of, you know, his desire to serve the Lord and what he did. So that's what we're talking about. It's a general term that means serving God in a way in a way all Christians are serving Him. But the office is specific. We know that from Philippians one one. We know that from right here in First Timothy three and the qualifications. So the qualifications are necessary. Why do we know that? Because the grammar indicates it. If you look at the very first part of verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. You've got a noun, but you've got no verb. There's a noun and no verb. That's a problem. So what verb are we talking about? Well, you got to go back to 1 Timothy, I believe, chapter 3, verse 2. And back there, there's another one in verse 7, and it's really kind of the same idea. But in verse 2, I think it's really the parallel, because we've got two sets of qualifications in parallel. Verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. And where it says must be, there in verse 2, that's your verb. <laughs> so it's a necessity, must be. <laughs> that's why I said what the deacon must be at the beginning of this, of this uh, message because the grammar indicates that it is necessary. And honestly, common sense demands it. So it's necessary according to the text, but also common sense demands it, because we're going to look at what the deacon does in a little bit. And one of the qualifications that comes out, that he can't be somebody who's greedy for a lot of money. The reason for that is because if you look scripturally what the deacon did, he was handling money. And so... If he's going to handle money, he can't be somebody who's liable to have money stick to his hands, right? Five-finger discount from the offering plate or something like that. that that's, so common sense indicates that there must be qualifications, that you must make sure that the man has a high moral standard because he will be handling money, among other things. So qualification is necessary. That's the observation. The first qualification, then, is in the next part of the verse. He's serious-minded. The ESV uh, translates here, um, dig, uh, de- de- yeah, deacons likewise must be dignified. Some translations will have it grave. Dignified, grave, New American Standard says men of dignity. The Amplified says worthy of respect. Um, some Bible scholars think that this is an umbrella term. That's the first thing I'll say about it. Like First Timothy 3, verse 2, the first qualification there where it said that the elder must be above reproach, in the same way deacons must be dignified. It's kind of an umbrella term that's defined by all the rest of the qualifications that follow it. So if you follow these qualifications, it's really going to tell whether or not you're dignified is sort of the idea. Just like the above reproach uh, term up there in First Timothy 3, verse 2, did the same thing for the elders. So it's an umbrella term, um, but there are, us, there are some other places where it's mentioned, and it's mentioned in the same chapter just a few verses later in verse 11. When we're talking about deacons' wives. The wives, likewise, must be dignified. So there's a qualification for the deacons' wives there, and it's the same qualification. You go over to Titus chapter 2, verse 2, and Titus is told to charge these older men how they should live. And it says, Older men are to be sober-minded and dignified, as well as self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. And so this is talk, it's really um, <laughs> what it's saying. It's a thorough term. Well, what I want to say is it's a, it's a thorough term. It's not just talking, again, you're talking about all these qualifications. It's not just talking about dignity of life. But I believe in the context of 1 Timothy 3, it's also talking about dignity of doctrine. Doctrine and life. A lot of times we can look at these qualifications and try to limit it to people's behaviors. But it also is reflective of what someone believes. And we're going to see that especially in verse 9, when we get to verse 9. Um, w. Gunther, in his, in his article in Brown's Dictionary of New Testament Theology, he says, Seriousness of both doctrine and life, is expected of the leaders of the church. So it's not just the qualifications, you know, the integrity, characteristics of a guy's life, but what does he believe is very important. We, in the modern church, not many people care about that anymore. Um, and so we must examine, even a deacon we should examine, regarding their doctrine. Just because they don't teach doesn't mean what they believe isn't important. Right? They're an officer of the church. They're representing the church and serving the people in the church. In the process of doing that, doctrine comes up. Doctrinal matters come up. And so it's as simple as knowing who's in the church, right? Who's a member of the church? Well, how do we know who the members are? Well, they've been baptized, that they profess faith in Christ, and do they understand the gospel and so deacons ought to be able to make that distinct that be able to tell that and make that distinction. So it's a thorough term in regards to being grave. It's not just being, you know, super grave and you know, you never smile, you look like you've been sucking on lemons all the time, something like that. But it just means that um, there's a seriousness about the way that he handles himself as a rule. Um so there's that. The second qualification we'll look at here is that he does not engage in, in double talk. He does not engage in double talk. The next well, verse eight, the next qualification, um says they're not double tongued. Not double tongued. Now this one's kind of a difficult thing to get to to get to as far as its meaning is concerned, because this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. But not only that, in the classical Greek, it was only ever used once in the classical Greek. (laughs) So once in the Greek at all, and then so twice (laughs) in all the Greek language. This is a very unique term. The Amplified Version says, not shifty and double talkers. I like that, not shifty. Um, In the New English Bible, not indulging in double talk. Uh, Yeah, I already mentioned that. So what does this mean? Well, it implies that one, this this person wouldn't be changing his speech for his audience. Changing his speech for his audience. That's what it means on um, one hand. What it also means is that it implies he does not use his speech to deceive or manipulate. So he's a person of integrity in the way that he speaks. He's not saying one thing to one person, and one thing to another person. That's really the idea of double-tongued. That's This is, I think, what you're getting at. Um, And it's embarrassing. I'll just say, I did this before I was a believer, and I was pastoring. Forget deacon for a minute, I did it. I remember an instance where uh, this church I was pastoring up near Buffalo, New York, we had a guy. uh, There was one guy in the church that was a pilot. He was a FedEx pilot or something. And he was wealthy, you know, and he came to me and he said, um, he asked me, are you Calvinist or Arminian? And uh, I suspected he was Arminian. So I said, I'm Arminian. And then I had another guy come up to me from the same church. Are you Calvinist or Arminian? I suspected he was Calvinist. So I'm a Calvinist. So what do you think happened? They met. It's not a huge, I mean 200 people, it's not really a, like a mega church, right? They're going to run into each other. And they did and compared notes. Oh yeah, and guess what happened? One of them left. And I don't know why they both didn't leave. But one of them left. And I say all that to say that it's a shameful thing. But the reason why I did it was I was caught up in all of that stuff, uh, the purpose-driven church stuff and Everything was about filling the pews. And when you're about everything being filling the pews and everything being about the amount of money you have coming in the plate, you'll tell people what they want to hear if they've got a lot of money. I did it. And the other guy was a new guy that was coming in. And I just wanted his butt to fill the pew, right? And so that's that's what happens. So I confess that to you. It's a sin. It's a terrible sin to do that especially in the ministry but it's happening all over the place and so um yeah that's that's the that's how an unconverted pastor acts and so um he doesn't change his speech for his audience and he doesn't use his speech to deceive or manipulate um you know just to you know get what you want to get your little power play whatever it is maybe you're not talking to two different people but for one audience right you say one thing and one audience you say another one if you're preaching in a public in public venues if you're you're trying to deceive people like doctrinally and things like that as to what you are and you try to be slippery about those things right that is double tongued and so we need to be very careful about those things that and look if you're just honest and you have integrity and you speak the same way all the time you don't have to worry about people running into each other so, yeah, um, that is out of order for someone in the ministry. Uh, the next one he must not be habitually addicted to alcohol. This is very you know this is almost identical to the earlier qualification, but first Timothy chapter three verse eight, um, not addicted to much wine, not addicted to much wine. he should not be habitually addicted. Alcohol, we've said this before, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here um, because we talked about it earlier. But it is not for leaders to drink wine, it's true not just for the pastor, according to the text, it's also true for the deacons, right? And so, I pointed out last time, I'll mention it again, that the priests in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, the Nazarites who took the Nazaritic vows, and Numbers chapter 6, verse 3. And the kings in Proverbs 31, verse 4, all of them were forbidden to drink wine in the Old Testament scripture. John the Baptist also abstained from drinking wine. And so, look, I mean, for leadership, it's definitely out. <laughs> and, you know, we got the whole issue, you should you um, take a little wine for your stomach's sake? Yes, you can use that medicinally, right? It's not completely ruled out. There's a medicinal use, but beyond that, for leaders in particular, you need to stay away from it because it's deceptive. So it's not for leaders to drink wine, and I'll also mention that just generally, it's not for leaders to be addicted to any substance, to any substance, and that would include caffeine, so let's just say it, (laughs) right? Um, We can be addicted to all kinds of different things, and for substances, um, you know, you say, well, it's legal. A lot of things are legal, that we shouldn't be participating in, right? And that can be harmful for us and can affect our judgment. And so whatever, you know, if you're on, by the way, it's just true of any believer, don't be addicted to stuff. You're supposed to be uh, have self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit. So since that's the case, if, you're, if you have an addiction, come talk to somebody, come talk to us, and we can help you, um, you know, find help for that. We'll help you with that. But uh, don't, you know, if, you're, if that's in your life, get free of that. Um, the next qualification, he must not be greedy for money. In the next part of verse 8, not greedy for dishonest gain. In particular, this is saying, you know, don't rip people off <laughs> on one hand. Um, but we've already dealt with the fact that we shouldn't be, uh, back with the uh, elder in verse 3, not a lover of money, right? So the same idea is in play. You don't live for money, on one hand, and you're not ripping people off, on the other hand. Um, that's what this qualification talks about. And I mentioned before that a deacon would regularly handle money. It's that way for us in this church. The deacons do handle money. They do the counting of the money um, after the service, and so um, they're there involved with that. Sometimes there's times where we help people with money, and you know that would go on. You see that in the New Testament. Romans chapter 15, verse 25. Romans 15, verse 25. This is Paul speaking, but this is one thing that he did. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he talks about bringing aid to the saints. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor, among the saints at Jerusalem. It's very likely the deacons were probably involved with taking that money up. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 19 is another example. Not only that, but he, uh, who are we talking about here? We're talking about Titus. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our goodwill. So there's this thing going on where they're taking up money to help out churches that are poor. Handling money is part of leadership within the church. And so, again, he can't be somebody who will be tempted to steal. And so he should have the testimony of someone like Samuel from the Old Testament. We use this Old Testament example. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 3. This is Samuel's farewell address. Listen to what he says as he ends his ministry in his life. 1 Samuel 12, verse 3. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. <laughs> that's confidence. That's a man who's got a clear conscience before God. And as he gets to the end of his life, he says, Hey, if you're going to accuse me of stealing something, bring forward the evidence, and I'll take care of it. That's, that's the way we ought to be. That's the way... We, uh, we should be able to speak with that kind of confidence in the way that we handle money. Um, no, we're going to get through it. So this last qualification, the fifth one, is verse 9. And what this means, let me read the verse first, then we'll say what it means. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What does that mean? What it means is the deacon must live up to his doctrine. Remember what we said before about doctrine, how doctrine is important. Here's another reason why it's important. It's in this qualification. He must live his life consistently with that doctrine, is the idea of the text. Now, so when you're looking at the verse, and it says they must hold the mystery of the faith, what does that mean? Well, mystery, whenever you see that in the New Testament, it's talking about something that formerly was hidden, but it's been revealed. And so the mystery of the faith Faith here is talking about doctrine. It's talking about all that Christianity, all the doctrine that represents Christianity, and so this this mystery has been revealed. Right, the Christian faith, Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and everything that Paul is teaching throughout the epistles. It's all being revealed: justification by faith, sanctification, glorification, expiation. All that has been revealed, and he's saying there. That has been revealed, and he must hold on to that. He has to hold on to that. And sometimes, if you look at the use of that word, oftentimes it's a literal use. But this specific derivative of the word often means carrying something. So how you carry that doctrine, if you've got something precious, how do you carry it? Carefully, right? Carefully, if you've got something precious, you know where it is at all times, Right? You got there, you hold it carefully. And so you do that, but it's shorthand for Christianity in terms of doctrine. Calvin said it would be exceedingly absurd to hold a public office in the church while they were ill informed in the Christian faith. It'd be crazy to give somebody an office in the church and they don't know anything about this precious doctrine that we're talking about, right? And along with that, the last part of the verse his conscience will not con- uh, will not condemn his doctrine. The way he lives his life, his conscience is clear. He holds the mystery of faith, how? With a clear conscience. A, c- a clear conscience. Now, I don't know if you remember this or not, but back in chapter 1, verse 5, there's a reference to conscience. It says, The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The commands that Paul's giving Timothy are not cooked up or contrived, but they come out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul was living this out. Paul's saying, look, this is how I'm living. This is how the deacons need to be living in this regard. And um, we have examples of a seared conscience here in the pastoral epistles. If you go to chapter 4, verse 2, it speaks of um, the latter times. And it says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. One characteristic of false teachers is that they are liars. And they have seared their own consciences. Um, Titus chapter 1 verse 15 is another example of that. Titus chapter 1 verse 15, we're just about done. To the pure all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So when someone is going down that path, that's a dangerous path. When someone begins to sin against their conscience, conscience with knowledge, con-science, you you have an innate conscience that God gives us, on one hand, but we can sear that conscience when we do what we know is wrong. And that's how it gets seared, how it gets burned like that. Homer Kent um, was quoted by Alexander Strzok's, Alexander Strock, in his book, The New Testament Deacon, which by the way is a really good book on deacons. Um, Homer Kent wrote a commentary on the pastoral epistles. This is what he says, to hold the mystery of the faith And a pure conscience is to live in the light of the Christian truth that the enlightened conscience will have no cause to condemn. A pure conscience indicates a pure life. If a man can live before God with a pure conscience, it means that he's living uh, with a pure life before God. So these are very important, these five qualifications that we have here. These are things that we do look for in deacons. And um, we're trying to be a, by the word, Baptist church, trying to be a, a biblical church. That's we strive to do this here. And uh, we'll pick up next time in verse 10 and uh, continue on in these qualifications. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. You don't leave us alone, uh, just trying to figure it out for ourselves. How do, how do we know who to put in leadership? How many offices are there? Uh, You don't just leave it to our good ideas. We would mess that up. Uh, Lord, thank you that you have given us the offices. Thank you that you have given us the, um, uh, the qualifications. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to what you've revealed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.